0: You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. We're about to start this next breakout session, Um, and I must say it's got the title um, that I think a lot of us are extremely interested in, How to Reverse Global Warming, Part 2, Drawdown and the Cooling Conundrum. So to run this session, please welcome the award-winning ABC journalist, presenter, podcaster and documentary maker, the fabulous Natasha Mitchell. (laughs) Fellow Life Matters alumni, Natasha, uh, who will delve deep into the critical need to not only decarbonise, but to also rapidly design and discover ways to draw down our carbon debt. Please welcome Natasha, who will introduce the panel she's about to wrangle. Enjoy. Thank
1: Thank you so much, Jane. How are we all? The scientists are in the house. We are going to get practical in this session and I want to acknowledge that we are on the land of the peoples of the Kulin Nation, who, let's be reminded, have been here for generations and generations and millennia and millennia. And so they know this place, long before humans started emitting dangerous levels of carbon dioxide. Uh, Hashtag NCE Summit 2020 get tweeting. So, Who was at the earlier session chaired by Bernie Hobbs? Excellent, this is part two. That session, reversing global warming, focused very much on preventing further greenhouse gas emissions and fast. This session is focused with this fabulous panel we're about to hear from on how we must rapidly pull out what we have already put into the atmosphere. Because the science is potently clear. If the world is to limit global warming to under two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? We will need to roughly halve current emissions in the next 10 years, halve them, and reach zero net greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. But we also need to pull out large amounts of carbon dioxide, and there's the rub, that we have also put into the atmosphere since industrialisation. So because... Even if emissions ceased tomorrow, in the next hour, shall we give it? We are already on track for what we describe as a committed amount of warming and sea level rise as the earth and the climate system catches up. Its impact will play out over thousands of years, what we have already put into the atmosphere. So how are we to achieve the drawdown of carbon fast? Can we use nature? through natural biological processes to get us there fast enough? Uh, Can we help nature with technological solutions? What are the options available right now? Can we be confident that they'll work? How do we make it happen? I'm going to introduce our speakers as they go, I think might be the most efficient because we're very keen for you to participate in the Slido system and post your questions, we'll see them there and I'll make sure we try and integrate as much discussion for this uh, final session before the final plenary. So let's kick off with, uh, please just welcome our panel first, can we? And I'll introduce them one by one. But Dr Joe, so the format will be presentations, I'm strictly, they're under strict instructions of no more than five minutes except for Joe because he's got a bit extra to say. Uh, and then we'll have a discussion, and then we'll open it out to you. Dr Joe Herbertson used to run BHP's corporate research labs, uh, was general manager research for BHP Steel. Now he's founder and director of what's called the Crucible Group, deploying a technology they call continuous biomass converter uh, to rehabilitate land, draw down CO2 from the atmosphere. He's also a conjoint professor uh, at the University of Newcastle. To talk about carbon and drawdown, and that whole challenge as a business opportunity. Please welcome Joe.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm not gonna deal with the whole thing. I'm gonna deal with what you can do in a business way when you're working with nature. You're making money and you're working with nature and you're contributing to the problem. So next one, sorry. Before I speak about my experience, just a couple of comments on behalf of all of us, and that is to put the drawdown into perspective. Um, getting to zero emissions should be ta- talked of as a milestone, not as an objective. There is nothing attractive about hanging around at one and a half, two, three, four degrees uh, net warming. A safe cl- we should, our objective is a safe climate, not zero emissions by 2050. And a safe climate is going to mean drawing down uh, the levels of of, of warming gases to something like the pre-industrial level. With the benefit of hindsight, we were probably only about 10 or so percent above those historical levels before you got serious uh, acceleration of ice melting and, and reef bleaching and so on. Now, in order to do that, Um, we're going to have the scale, we have to draw down. And the IPCC diagram, which is there, and then I've drawn my little red one on top of it, it only tells half the story. Once we get to carbon zero, up to that point, we haven't done anything to draw the levels down. All we've done is increase them. So at that point, we have to draw them down if we want a safe climate. And broadly speaking, the scale of that drawdown is going to be roughly the amount of carbon we've taken out, you know, put in the biosphere from the lithosphere or if we accelerate it through, for instance, permafrost liberation and stuff like that. So the scale of our drawdown problem is roughly the scale of what we have done and that's about 400,000 million tonnes of carbon that we've taken from the lithosphere and stuck it in the biosphere and and it's about 60% in the the air and and 40% in the ocean. If we pull it down, uh, we can't just pull down the stuff in the atmosphere because the ocean will just come back and equilibrate which it did in the first place. So we have to be mentally prepared and steeled for a drawdown of the scale of what we put in. Um, and here comes the connection. The inner sca- you don't, climate modelling is very complicated mathematically. But th- what I'm going to say now, all you have to understand is the area under a curve. If you're trying to pull out what you've created, you know, it's the area under the curve which means the longer it takes us to get to zero, the more we have to pull down. I mean, these are just the two sides of the same equation. So if we we let this fossil fuel industry off the hook and they are emitting for longer, the amount of drawdown is, is, is bigger. The longer we take, the higher the temperature will have reached by the time we we peak it and start pulling it down, we're starting to increase the tipping point risks and so on and so forth. So the longer it takes us to get there, to zero, until we get to zero there will be no effect on cooling whatsoever. All the time uh, till we get to zero, the climate will be getting worse. But when we get to zero, the scale of drawdown and its risks will go up by how slow we are now. So we should be very determined to be as quick as humanly possible uh, in in that task. Thank you. I've tried to press this. Now from a business point of view, I don't start with the problem, the CO2, I start with the value. Carbon is a fantastically, fundamentally important value-creating substance in our ecospheres and our economies. It is valuable. Our problem is where we got it from, not not the carbon itself. If we can start mining the the carbon in the atmosphere, thanks very much to our natural friend Photosynthesis, and come down and make things of value in this economy, out of that source of carbon, it's vital. And uh, that's what, uh, you know, vital to renewable carbon within industry, vital to agricultural restoration, and ultimately a vital uh, component to drawdown. And that's what our technology does. It, it turns biomass into valuable products, char, a, a gas and a wood vinegar, they, they are helpful to renewable carbon sources in industry and they are helpful to regenerative agriculture and they can have the effect of contributing to drawdown. You seem to have to press it twice, do you? Just to give some examples, otherwise. Um, Joss Stiulis is a winemaker. He uses the char and the wood vinegar. He mixes up with mulch and, 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 and so on, chicken litter. Where's he got to? His, his, his soils are progressively richer in carbon. His, his soil scientist has never seen organic matter like that in vineyard. His wines are tasting better. He's winning prizes for wines that were fairly ordinary. And, uh, and in the drought, he's now got a healthier system and he's actually maintained his, his harvest when around him, people, you know, semi-on growers are, are losing 40, up to 80% of their harvest. That's the win-win of making money, building up carbon stocks, and building uh, resilience to to drought. Now, steel making—it's um, carbon's fundamental to making steel, and we're going to need steel in this uh, in this new period. This is one example: Mollycodd, steel steelworks in our in our town. We we are working with them in in collaboration to make sure that the carbon they need, which is fundamental to metallurgical and uh, and product performance, that that can be pro- provided through renewable carbon sources, which is. Um, and keep in mind that out, that's only about 6 or so percent of the, of the problem, but almost all of the rest of the problem you can do by renewable le- electricity replacing the electri- electricity they use now and then electrifying their use of uh, uh, natural gas and things like that for heat. So it is perfectly possible to envisage a quick journey to carbon zero in steelmaking. There's many reasons why we have to... Uh, uh, you know, accept and, and, and deal with Indigenous rights. But in this particular context, a big problem with climate change is agriculture, land use, land use changes. So we're not even going to get to zero without doing that. And then the land uh, the land is going to give us a lot of potential for, um, for uh, you know, drawdown. But we live in land that's very specific. So we're going to need... This is not a... a, a a lovely add-on. We are going to need all of the knowledge that's stored in those in that uh, ancient uh, wisdom, and bring it together with modern science to help create solutions in the here and now. So um, that's another factor. And then, just finally, um, in terms of drawdown potential, uh, the IPC accepts that that biochar-type things can represent about 1.7 gigatons of of emission. A reduction. It's about 10% of what the fossil fuels are giving right now. If you laid it out over 100 years, you'd make a significant contribution to drawdown. Thank you very much.
1: Fantastic. Thanks so much, Joe, and very interesting. I imagine you're all wondering about Joe's transition from being in the steel industry and with one of our big industrial companies, BHP, to what he's doing now with uh, biomass and biochar. Fascinating transition, life transition too. Um, redeploying his skills in different contexts. Kate Dooley is our next speaker. She's research fellow at Melbourne University's Climate and Energy College and a lecturer in the School of Geography. She's currently researching how restoring existing degraded natural ecosystems can remove and lock up atmospheric carbon to draw it down. So to talk on how trees can or perhaps can't Help us with our drawdown challenge. Please welcome Kate Dooley. Great,
3: thank you very much. Um, so I want to talk about, um, as Natasha said, how ecosystems and restoring degraded ecosystems can help us to remove carbon at the scale that's needed. So just to emphasize similar graph to what Joe started with here but we're talking about reducing emissions to very close to zero, pretty much zero by 2050, and at the same time, removing large amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. Now these graphs always show this as sort of consecutive. These, so in this one that I'm showing you, the carbon removal that I'm talking about is the sort of yellow color, the orange yellow color. So, but it's not happening just after we reduce emissions to zero by 2050, it's starting already before that. And then we cross a threshold where we go from net emissions to net removals in the second half of the century. Um, now to, we'll skip that one. So what we have now is um, the managed lands are a net source of carbon to the tune of around five gigatons of CO2 a year. So overall the biosphere is a sink, it removes half of uh, between the um, terrestrial biosphere and the oceans, they remove half of all of the emissions we release every year but the managed lands, ones that humans um, use for agriculture or um, forest harvest or other reasons, these are actually a net source of emissions. And so the aim of this drawdown in, in managed lands would be to reverse that five gigatons CO2 a year from lands, reverse that um, and draw down at least double that, so or around double that. So in the study I'm looking at, we remove nine gigatons of CO2 a year through managed lands. Um, and this is not through planting trees. There is a little bit of tree planting, which I'll explain, but mostly um, the big potential is in restoring degraded ecosystems. So um, in terms of forests, for example, degraded forests would be forests that have been uh, logged, perhaps not clear felled, but logged selectively, um, used for agriculture and then abandoned, and so there's Um, Currently, globally, there's something like um, 2 billion hectares of degraded forest lands. So if we restored even a quarter of that, 25% of that 2 billion hectares, which would mean removing disturbance from those lands, that's what I mean by restoring them, we stop logging them, we stop allowing grazing to happen in there, disturbance is removed and those lands are protected through a variety of land, of, um, land management options. Um, that could remove almost two gigatons of CO2 a year from the atmosphere. So, getting, moving us some way towards that nine gigatons. Um, the next thing we can do is expanding natural forests. Now, there's been a lot in the media over the last year about tree planting and planting a trillion trees that would require an enormous amount of land. Land's a finite resource, and we don't have a lot of spare land to plant a trillion trees on. So rather than thinking about tree planting, we need to think about restoring lost forests, allowing forests to naturally regrow and regenerate, and in particular doing that through what's called connectivity conservation, which is buffering existing intact forest areas and reconnecting areas of fragmented forest, which um, helps contribute to biodiversity resilience and species maintenance and, and a whole lot of other ecosystem services that are really critical. It also requires a lot less land and we've got significant mitigation potential from this. Um, A few other options that I'll go through um, very quickly that we've looked at in this research is um, reducing harvest intensity in natural forests. So not in plantation forests but in parts of the world where natural forests are still logged. um, Reducing the uh, harvest intensity, the amount of um, harvest from that forest or, in particular, extending rotation times, which over the last half a century have become shorter and shorter and shorter, bringing rotation times back out to 80 and more years can mean a lot more carbon, um, can be drawn down drawn down and stored in the forest, and at the same time, it restores some of the ecosystem function of the forest. Now, forests that it's appropriate to do this in, it, it really depends on the ecosystem type. In, in Victoria... The Andrews government has announced um, phasing out logging of natural forests by 2030, and we have some of the most carbon-dense forests in the world, so it's not appropriate to log there. In places in Europe, uh, in in Europe in particular, there's a lot of um, logging in, in sort of semi-natural forests, and that could continue, but in a much more sustainable way. And finally, I wanted to talk about agroforestry. So this is the idea that land, the agricultural land can be employed for mixed use. So incorporating trees into croplands and grazing lands can actually sequester huge amounts of carbon into those lands, and it can actually increase agricultural productivity. I think you'll hear more about that from one of the other panelists. So I won't go into it, but I just want to finish to say that um, this is really about thinking about the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis as in an integrated and holistic way, responding to both of them together means that we restore ecosystems which is absolutely crucial whether climate change was happening or not but in those um, ecosystems when they're more resilient and more biodiverse then they're more they're more resilient to the impacts of climate change they have more carbon in them and they they essentially we need that biodiversity and ecosystem integrity it underpins
1: um, life on the planet thanks. Thank you very much, Kate, and uh, I, I'm interested to hear how that intersects with the, the conversation that's happening on the global stage about planting one trillion new trees rather than restoring, uh, reviving, expanding existing mature forests. Next in our drawdown challenge, we have to introduce you to blue carbon, not green carbon, And how we might harness it is Peter McCready, Associate Professor of Marine Science at Deakin. With his students, he spends a lot of time knee-deep in the mangroves. Please welcome Peter.
4: So who's ready for some good news after a couple of of very intense days? Um, Yes, lots of hands. And can you put your hand up if you've never heard of blue carbon before? That's great. I love talking to people who have never heard of this stuff before because I've fallen deeply and hopelessly in love with blue carbon about 10 years ago. And blue carbon is a term that's used to describe carbon that is captured and stored by the oceans. The oceans are blue, so we call it blue carbon. Uh, Kate talked about green carbon, which is carbon on land in the form of forests. And when we talk about blue carbon ecosystems, we're really referring to three ecosystems. You've got your tidal marshes, your uh, mangrove forests, and your seagrass meadows. These three ecosystems occupy only 0.2% of the ocean's sea floor, yet they sequester more than half the ocean's carbon. So they occupy 0.2%, they capture and store more than half the ocean's carbon. So, when this term was first coined, there was some curiosity about, can we somehow compare blue carbon ecosystems to green carbon ecosystems? And what you're seeing there on the top right-hand corner is a graph that was produced from some early data and was published which showed that blue carbon ecosystems capture and store carbon and bury it in soils about 40 times faster than green carbon ecosystems. So, for every hectare of, blue carbon habitat, you'd need about 40 hectares of green carbon habitat to do the same amount of carbon drawdown. Now they are storing the carbon very differently. They're grabbing the carbon and they're putting it in a wet and watery grave, which is a really fantastic place for storing carbon. And here's the irony, these ecosystems, you can call them broadly wetlands, they created fossil fuels in the first place. The other, so that's another important thing, they act as a form of long-term carbon stor- storage. Um, I'm at Deakin University and we offset our flight and vehicle emissions, um, but it always bothers me that I'm drawing out carbon from the ground that's been there for really long periods of time and I offset mostly in trees which hold the carbon for the lifetime of a tree which might be 50 or 100 years. And I think trees have a really important place in our future, and as we've seen, there's some great data to show their role in carbon drawdown, but we need to be thinking more about wetlands, the systems that created fossil fuels in the first place. So we spent a lot of time, and I say we, Australians, uh, Australian blue carbon scientists, going around Australia and trying to figure out how much blue carbon do we have and where is it? And you're seeing some footage here of some of that research in action. And what we found is that Australia has more blue carbon than anywhere else in the world. We have 5 to 11% of the world's blue carbon. That car- these blue carbon ecosystems are drawing down carbon every year, uh, equivalent to about 4 to 6% of emissions from uh, from uh, uh, fossil fuel burning in Australia, or equivalent to offsetting about half of all vehicle emissions in Australia. However, We've also destroyed enormous uh, amounts of wetlands around Australia, about nine million football fields. Uh, When many um, European settlers came through from the time of 1788, we drained a lot of these wetlands. Um, I can only imagine the frustration of our traditional owners thinking, you idiots, these are really important ecosystems and I'll touch on this in the next slide. Um, Those emissions from draining these ecosystems, assuming that carbon is released into the atmosphere and we have some data to support this, it's equivalent to about an extra 10 million cars on the road each year because we're still losing these ecosystems at about 1% to 2% per year. Um, They're regarded by many Australians still as the armpits of our coastal environment. They're not very charismatic, muddy environments. I I love them, as Natasha said, uh, but we've still got a long way to go in protecting and restoring them. So I said there's more, and and this is sort of the steak knife sales pitch, so I'm gonna throw in the steak knives here. Um, They are really important for coastal protection. Australia's existing wetlands provide about $3 billion in avoided damages to Australian infrastructure. They're worth about $50 million to our economy by supporting fisheries, so they act as nursery grounds for juvenile fish, giving them food, shelter, and protection. And apparently, as uncharismatic as I've made them out to be, there are many people that enjoy these wetlands for, uh, for example, for observing birds. Um, we studied some bird watchers around Victoria, Port Phillip Bay right here, and these guys are like ninjas. They come in and they watch the birds, and on one day we had a huge spike in the data where a small group of bird watchers, it was called a mega-twitch event, they spent $141,000 coming to see a male tufted duck that appeared in a local wetland, it's only a stone's throw from here, first time it had ever been seen in Australia, and it just loves our wetlands, as do many other important endangered species like the orange-bellied parrot. so they're really important for biodiversity. So uh, I head up the Blue Carbon Lab, and and these people are extremely passionate, as am I, to see uh, more protection and restoration of blue carbon ecosystems, better recognition that these ecosystems created fossil fuels in the first place. And if you want to hear more about the research we're doing, uh, jump on our website. Um, there's a lot of work to do in raising the profile of wetlands, and I believe they have a really important role as long-term carbon sinks in our future. Thank you for your time.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter. And I know all of your students wanted to be here and it was apparently sold out. So if you're watching on the live stream, Blue Carbon Lab, let's give them all a cheer. (laughs) And uh, who's a twitcher? All hail the duck-loving twitchers. Thank you for your insight, much appreciated. And lots to talk about there too. And those ecosystems that you describe are just so delightful to be amongst too, even if they stink a bit and, you know, are a bit glumpy and muddy. They are just delightful places to be. Last but not least, uh, we have Tony Rinaldo. He's Principal Advisor for Natural Resources Management with World Vision and he comes to that role with an immense amount of international experience. He's run rural development dryland reforestation programs and he pioneered... Uh, with communities across Africa, particularly in Niger, Niger, a a low-cost land restoration approach dubbed farmer-managed natural regeneration. And uh, recently you might have seen an ABC opinion piece, uh, an opinion piece that he published on the ABC website, I think it was, uh, trying to offer his insight into what that experience might lend us here in Australia as a land of dry lands, particularly in the context of the recent bushfire season, which continues to this very moment. Please welcome Tony. Thank you. In
5: 1980, living in West Africa, I was confronted by an environment on the point of ecological collapse, barely able to support life on Earth, and I thought simple if deforestation was a large part of the root cause of that problem then planting trees must be a big part of the solution nothing worked in a sustainable economically viable or satisfying way more than 80 percent of the trees we planted died it was expensive it wasn't replicable by the local community and they weren't interested anyway i'd given two and a half of the best years of my life and I felt like a hopeless failure, waste of time and money. It felt like giving up and going home. And I I want to share something personal, but I think it's relevant to the situation we find ourselves in. I, I threw up a prayer simply asking a collective forgiveness for destroying the earth that we live in as a consequence of which people were suffering. They were hungry, they were poor, and like many of us, they feared for the future but I asked for wisdom and for what to do. The answer was literally at our feet. Um, There are tens of millions of hectares across the world with what I call a vast underground forest, remnant living tree stumps, roots and seeds in the ground, just waiting to be released, living stumps and roots that have the ability to regenerate vast landscapes. Uh, Simply, the the definition is the selection, the thinning and pruning, and the care of the the shoots that come up from that repository. In Niger Republic, uh, uh, to explain what I mean by the underground forest, if we had special vision and we could see beneath the surface of the ground, we would quickly realise that even when you cut a tree down, 30 to 50% of the mass of the tree is still alive and has this enormous capacity to regrow very, very quickly. In Niger Republic, within just a three-year period, seemingly treeless landscapes uh, on farmland were restored to scenes like this. Over a 20-year period, more than 5 million hectares carrying over 200 million trees were restored, not by big projects, not by me, but by farmers themselves. And it was low cost, it was very rapid, and it was scalable. And you can see from the satellite imagery there what I mean. And the the wonderful thing is it's empowering and enabled people to take charge of their own lives and to benefit from their work. In other contexts, after you clear and burn the forest, the reaction is that nature forms an impenetrable, thorny thicket, useless to man and beast and often to wildlife as well. The same principles of thinning, pruning and management apply and there are tens of millions of hectares of degraded forest land like this that can be restored very quickly. I just want to share a few lessons from that time living in Niger. While we should by all means engage with government and the commercial sector and the United Nations agencies, we in Niger realised that we, we couldn't wait for them to work it out. This, this uh, movement that I described was a people's movement. It took government, business and the UN more than 20 years to catch up. Secondly, never give up. The solutions could literally be at your feet or just around the corner. Thirdly, mindset change precedes behavior change. And and so we we have a great burden. We've had the facts for several decades now, but we need to communicate. We need to lead by example. We need to replace lies with truth and challenge denialists. Not not in a, a fighting arrogant way, but with respect. And then lastly, nature-based solutions could provide up to 30% of the answer to climate change. Bill Mollison once said, the solutions to the increasingly complex problems of the world are embarrassingly simple. I love that statement. In the case of the work that I do, it's embarrassingly simple, but I'm not ashamed because it works. I call it a no regrets technology. There's no downside, there's no unintended consequences. Uh, Globally, there are in theory at least nearly a billion hectares of degraded landscapes, much of which could be restored. In addition, there are over two billion hectares of agricultural and grazing land suitable for for agroforestry to some degree and in some form. And just to finish up, there's an old adage, if you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, by all means, go for it. In, In other words, give it all you've got don't hold back and so my plea to this audience is whatever your expertise, whatever your sphere of influence, don't hold back, don't give up, go for it. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much Tony. Um, I've just got a little side comment to my ABC colleague Bernie Hobbs, Uh, all my speakers kept to time. Well done, folks, and so much to talk about there. Let's spend about 15 minutes having a yak, and then we'll open it out to the questions. Um, uh, so much to talk about. Kate and, and Peter, a question for both of you. Are your, is what you're arguing for, harnessing the potential of blue carbon, harnessing the potential of restored natural forests, are they vulnerable pathways? to this drawdown challenge. Because as we've seen, we've just had a summer where thousands of hectares of trees have been burnt down and that carbon has been released. Likewise, wetlands, seagrasses, we develop our coastlines, you know, obsessively in our country and beyond. They're under threat as ecosystems. Are they a reliable option if we're going to really achieve drawdown, both of you?
3: Um, yeah, thanks, that's an excellent question. So in the numbers I was talking about, I was saying currently we, the land sector, managed lands globally, are five gigaton CO2 emissions, that's a net emission. So we have to, under, and what I mean by that is uh, carbon is going in and out of the land all the time. So there's forest fires and then the forests regrow and the carbon is um, drawn down again and then it's released again. So we need to see, to some degree, that there's always a flux in the land sector in terms of the carbon balance. What we want is a net drawdown rather than a net emission. So it's flipping that balance from a net source to a net sink in forests. And the the things I talked about, ecosystem um, restoration and reducing harvest pressure on forests, that all would contribute to that flipping from a source, an overall source, to an overall sink. So it doesn't mean we never have emissions from forests, there's never another bushfire. It's it's the overall net balance, um, and one other thing that's important to say in response to that question is absolutely it's risky. There's there's no way that um, we that I would say br- bringing all this carbon back into forests is is what we it's not the number one strategy. The number one strategy to deal with climate change is to not release carbon in the first place. It's always more risky to try and recapture carbon and more expensive and more difficult and more uncertain that it will ever happen in the future than to not release it now. So that's that's the starting point. But the reason I'm focusing on ecosystem restoration is that gives the greatest chance of those ecosystems being resilient and long-lived and
1: surviving in the face of climate change and recovering. Just before we come to Peter, what would you say in response to Trump saying, let's plant a trillion trees, as a number of uh, leaders have got on board that, that uh, effort in, an eff- in a sense to say, well, we won't need to reduce fossil fuel emissions if only we plant a trillion trees. Now, that's planting new forest, and that's an inherently risky enterprise too in terms of the drawdown challenge.
3: There's, there's so many drawdown, drawbacks and and dangers and risks to that proposition. So it's not just, it's a huge issue at the moment, it's become more of an issue over the last year because of this increased focus on natural ecosystems and forests as a way to remove carbon. And then that gets somehow got spin out, spun out into, we plant a lot of new trees and then BP and Shell and all of the big fossil fuel industries are suddenly saying they're going to be net zero emissions because they're investing in tree planting. It doesn't work that way. We have to go to zero emissions and have more carbon in the landscapes. And if we do that, it's, it's absolutely critical. If, but if we do that more carbon in the landscapes via planting new trees, then those trees um, are, are much more susceptible to being lost. So you already heard from, um, from Peter how the tree planting efforts failed. So there's a, a, a large chance that those tree planting efforts won't succeed, and they're also much more su- vulnerable to fire and to pest invasion, and that's why the importance mm. is on natural ecosystems. Just one other thing about tree planting is it has to happen on land and whose land is it? Land is finite and Mm. land is at the heart of nearly every human conflict, major conflict in human history. So we don't want to suddenly be appropriating large areas of land in particular so that um, uh, excess emissions of of the global north can continue. We need to minimise land use change
1: and use land for what
3: its current best purposes are.
1: Great, thanks for clearing that up, Kate, because it's such a... Uh, a point of contention right now. Peter, that question of the vulnerability of of blue carbon as a a drawdown pathway.
4: The reason they've stored carbon for so long is because they provide these environments where it's very hard to break down the carbon once they're there. Um, They don't catch on fire if they're healthy, so that's one big advantage. However, We have seen and we've done studies that we published recently where we took this ancient carbon, 5,000 year old carbon from wetlands and we exposed it to to oxygen and uh, oxygen seems to be this master switch that turns on these microbes and brings them out of a, a state of dormancy and they can break down that ancient carbon and effectively it's a bit like opening a carbon vault and just letting out carbon that's been retired from the carbon cycle for thousands of years and releasing it back into the atmosphere. So They are a very long-term and can be permanent carbon sink so long as you don't disturb them. And processes like um, dredging and and, and port development and um, eutrophication in the coastal zone, there's all these disturbances and and they're facing a death death by a thousand cuts at the moment because most humans, 90% of Australia is living within 50 kilometres of the coast. So we're putting a lot of pressure on these coastal wetlands. We love
1: our coastlines.
4: Love them to death. We
1: love them too much. Mm. Yeah. And we'll come back to some of the ways in which we might, you know, protect some of these uh, sinks, carbon sinks, to round off on a positive note. But um, Joe and Tony, in both of your stories, uh, the story of soil is part of the, the sort of potency of what you're both involved in. Joe, where does nourishing soil fit into your mission
2: I think it's is that working?
1: Yep, it is. Just hold up.
2: I don't think there's any future, even if there was no climate change, to feed the world's population if we don't completely change the agricultural paradigm, where and and that has at its at its heart lifting soil quality, bacterial activity, soil activity, uh, etc. So everything we're doing should be everything we've done by pumping with agrochemicals and pumping more productivity, etc, has actually reduced the carbon. So as we, you know, we're only going to get sustainable agriculture if we actually regenerate the soils and lift the carbon and so on. So for me, soils are absolutely critical in terms of food supply and response to climate change. So
1: how, where is soil fitting into your technology, the continuous biomass converter, and how you're deploying that with, um, uh, well, both, both those who are supplying you with the biomass, because you've got to set up a whole supply chain, don't you, and then those who are then utilising the biochar and other products that come out of your converter.
2: We're, we're not talking, the diagram said photosynthesis biomass, we're not talking about that. We're saying photosynthesis will create biomass. Which will create value in society, and when that value has been had its first time around it was a table, it was a cupboard, it was a macadamia shell, or whatever it was. When it's done, use that to create the char and the wood vinegar and the and, and the uh, and the energy, the gas, because they are more valuable proportionally in regenerating uh, the soils than if you just you know burn those things and so on. So they're very valuable products. So. We, we see the products of our biomass converter having an enormous direction towards soils.
1: Doesn't this conversion of biomass, say the macadamia factories, husks from their process, they give them to you, you convert them to biochar and wood vinegar and, 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 and other products, doesn't that process create greenhouse gases?
2: Well, there's uh there's carbon dioxide given off when you process biomass material but all the carbon that biomass came from the atmosphere so unless you are part and parcel of a net clearance of biomass you know there's a net tree you know land clearance etc that that they're what you call carbon neutral co2 emissions they don't they don't contribute to the problem at all so we don't we don't uh, produce any you know climate changing emissions of uh, greenhouse gases
1: yeah, it's very interesting. You, you know, come from the steel industry. Uh, it, it's incredible to think that those industries could be fueled, be driven by renewable energy. Do you yeah. see that that's possible?
2: I, well, there's two parts. Um, once you've got a mature society that's been established at a high standard of living for a long time, you can rely on scrap recovery. And that's the example I showed. And that's very easily turned into renewable energy around renewable electricity and electrification of process heat. So that, that's that side and there's a little bit of carbon that we can do with biocarbon. The, when you're building your stocks of, of steel in society because it's fundamentally part of uh, lifting economic standards of living and so on, you have to take some fresh iron ore and make new, new stuff. That is very carbon intensive. And at the moment, that's with through blast furnaces. So for every tonne of iron you make, you use about three-quarters of a tonne of fossil fuel. About half of that could be replaced from our studies by biocarbon. You know, it could actually do, but you can't replace the coke. So that you could go halfway towards renewable, uh, reducted in energy in, in iron making. Uh, I think uh, going back to the session before, ultimately for primary iron making, because we're gonna need steel, Um, Ultimately, the future for iron making will probably be by using the hydrogen reduction method of iron ore rather than the carbon reduction. And for that, I see the biggest hurdle technically is the availability of bulk cost-effective hydrogen. I think the industry knows enough through its direct reduction technologies and so on to actually move to hydrogen reduction. So that's a 2030s, sort of 40s sort of perspective. But I can completely see steel being part of the forever, I've got steel in my veins anyway, I see steel as an absolutely fundamental part of society and I see it having to and being able to be completely uh, provided by renewable energy and renewable carbon sources.
1: I'm very interested at the scope of this conversation. We've gone from the twitches to the little farmers to big industry. So we're We're linking everyone up in this drawdown challenge. Tony, soil, (laughs) what have you observed on the ground as you work alongside farmers to rejuvenate tree stumps into living trees above the ground, not just below the ground? Where's the soil story fitting in there? Mm. Because soil is a powerful, a powerful part of this conversation. Mm
5: -hmm. Very critical part of the story. So uh, over the last century, particularly in tropical areas, soils that might have contained more than 5% carbon content uh, now have less than 1%. That means lower moisture holding capacity, more vulnerability to drought. And it's also the the focal point that nutrients can uh, lodge onto and through the activity of microbes, become available to plants. As soil carbon drops, crop yields drop, farmers needing to feed their families will clear more forests, if there are any, um, and cause more emissions. And in addition, when there's no food, if there's any nearby forest, they find food for their family by cutting firewood and making charcoal and and destroying forests. As the trees regenerated, we've seen an increase in soil carbon, uh, greater retention of moisture, and including um, uh, resilience to to droughts, which are quite frequent, and and higher crop yields, up to a a doubling, and in some cases, a tripling in crop yields without inputs. You can still put in inputs at, at another stage, but many of these farmers are amongst the poorest in the world simply by working with nature, and some of these trees are nitrogen fixing, they're all putting carbon into the soil through leaf litter fall and so on. Simply through working with nature, they've lifted their yields to that extent.
1: You talked about a mindset change coming before a behavioural change with the farmers that you've worked with, yeah. and, and with governments and agencies, yeah. etc. I've got that the right way around, haven't I? Describe what had to shift because you're working in complex environments where natural resources are a, a, a rare, far and few between, people are in desperate need of wood, mm. of firewood. Um, so to talk us through yeah. where some of the challenges have yeah. been and how they, we'll come to how that might be relevant to Australia yeah. and farmlands here. Well,
5: it's been very challenging. Uh, some people call me the forest maker and I disappoint them when I tell them, actually, 95% of what I do is regreen mindscapes and if i win that battle here because everything that you need is there in nature to regenerate itself you win that battle nature will come back and so the kinds of uh, constraints and it's almost universal there's a, there's a belief that you can't have trees and crops so you can't have trees and pastures together Uh, under some trees you'll certainly notice a depression in in crop height and and yield but certain trees at the right spacing and the right management, what we saw and what the farmers are now experiencing, those crop yields doubled. There there was an attitude that, "Ah," and somebody said this to me, Mr. Tony if I plant a tree maybe my son will benefit, perhaps my grandchildren, but I never will. So this perception that that takes forever, I'm hungry today, I can't wait. And yet, particularly when you are working from regenerated tree stumps, the growth rates are very, very rapid. I've had situations with um, uh, political leaders, parliamentarians, when they look at my work and they say, oh, you're trying to drag us back into the dark ages. You know, we've come out of that. We want to emulate you with big tractors and um, uh, monocropping and cleared land. So there's there's many, many negative mindsets, not necessarily based on the the truth.
1: So tell me about the point at which the winds start, the win started coming. So, you know, where the realisation was triggered for people, what were they, what benefits were they deriving in the early phase of this whole process, that they could see the kernel of potential? And they were still getting the benefit of the wood mm-hmm. from the trees as well. That's key here, isn't it? it,
5: it certainly in the, in the Niger case, women were walking up to four hours just to find fuel wood. Often there was none. They were burning cow manure for cooking. Straw, elements that should be going back on the land to fertilize it. It, it. it was difficult. And I found maybe maybe 10 or 12 farmers in as many villages who were willing to at least humor me and give this a try. And it started to work. We encouraged them to just do this regeneration on a small corner of their farm. And I promised them, if it doesn't work, if it destroys your crops, cut them out. Go back to where you were, but just give it a try. And in that first year, it was working. But uh, for various reasons, jealousies, suspicion, uh, fear of change, others would come at night and cut those trees. And it could have failed that year. But in 1983, there was a severe drought and following that food shortage. And we were in a position eventually to give food aid, and the government said, no free handouts. If people are able-bodied, they must work for this. And so we had this tool. If you want the food, which we gave each month, one of the work requirements is to regenerate trees. That year they left 500,000 trees, and it looked beautiful. As soon as the food aid stopped, 75% 75% of the trees were cut out, finished with Tony, we'll get on with our life. But we'd captured a critical mass, 25% who said, no, the guy's mad, but nothing bad happened. In fact, the crops were a little bit better. The wind speeds were slower. We had fewer wood, and some of these trees provide fruit, fodder, and so on. So they convinced themselves, and eventually, the laggards were looking over the fence and they they followed until it it spread across that country to the five million hectares that I mentioned.
1: I'll come back to you a bit later. What what a fascinating story. And I'll look forward to just trying to connect that back to the Australian landscape as you see it too. Um, Again, a kind of double-headed question for you, uh, a dual question for you, um, Kate and Peter. What impact does climate change itself have on the capacity of what you're arguing for, blue carbon, restoration of of mature forests, what does that have on their capacity to sequester carbon? Um, Can it flip these environments sometimes from being a sink to a source, for example?
4: With blue carbon environments, we've seen opportunities for expansion. To places they've never been before. So sea level rise, there are places where salt water will end up penetrating farmlands and other properties. Um, but we've done some modelling and we've looked at the amount of coastal squeeze they're facing, so they're running out of space, they're going to drown because we put up fortifications and barriers right around the Australian coastline. On the whole, even if we go pretty hard, uh, we will see a decline in the number of blue carbon ecosystems going forward for most states, so we've got a a paper under review at the moment where we've projected what will happen, unless we very seriously take our coastal real estate into consideration and and what we would be advising is that we're gonna have to retreat. Um, So on the whole, at the moment, business as usual, blue carbon ecosystems are in big trouble with future climate change.
3: Kate. Um, Yeah the same same story for terrestrial ecosystems. Uh, I think so global modeling shows that we get to around two and a half degrees or 2.2 degrees before we really start to lose the big forests of the world. So we really need to not cross that two degree threshold and um, and even less, we need to keep temperatures down to 1.5 degrees. And I tend to think of it in that big picture way, like um, the ecosystem restoration I described is part of the solution to keeping us... So those numbers were actually compatible with a 1.5 degree pathway if we had complete 100% decarbonization of energy and industry, so no emissions by 2050. So doing those things in conjunction actually contributes to to still having forests and maintaining those terrestrial ecosystems. At the moment, so every year there's a big um, science group called the Global Carbon Project. They um, report on carbon emissions, including terrestrial land sector emissions, and they see um, no sign of the terrestrial sink reversing, even though there's certain individual papers that show potential Risks in different parts of the world, overall, it's considered to be not reversing, although the, the bad news there is, um, because this has to be looked at over long time spans and averages because of these constant fluxes of CO2 in terrestrial ecosystems, the bad news is it, it's going to be hard to see that in the future. We, we won't really be certain um, the risk of reversing is, hap- is there until it's already happened. Um, Anyway, the bottom line is the more we do to limit climate change, the more we protect these ecosystems. At the same time, the more we have intact, resilient, biodiverse ecosystems, the more resilient they are to warming temperatures. Um, There's probably one other thing to say there in terms of soils. So soils are more vulnerable to warming and drying climates even than forests and other ecosystems, agricultural soils. And in terms of, um, of soil carbon as, as a way to mitigate against climate change, like soil carbon is incre- incredibly important, as, as we've heard from other panellists. But um, in Victoria, for example, where um, we're getting drying climate, um, drying and warming climate, for farmers it's a huge battle to hold on to the carbon in their soil. So there are, no, there are no or very few aspirations about increasing soil carbon, but land management practices for farmers in this state really have to focus on not losing that soil carbon or they, they lose their farm.
1: Uh, just a reminder, I feel like we're getting extra time given to us every few minutes, but, um, that, which is a good thing because it means we have more time to discuss with you, but just a reminder that it's, I think it's slido.com slash NCE 2020, and it's NCE Summit 2020, is that right? Have we got the info? You all know how to ask questions, slido.com slash NCE Summit 2020. Is that right? Is that what you go to? There it is. Perfect. Do that because I'd love to involve you in questions and we've got a good little meaty chunk of time. Uh, So, though, I've kept politics ostensibly out of this conversation, but now I'm bringing it in. Uh, Because politicians, of course control the levers of government. So what, from each of your perspectives, in each of your specialist domains, what, how do we incentivise to maximise the drawdown potential of each of these? What are, the, what are the levers that need to be pulled? Particularly here in Australia, but, but we're talking about ecosystems, so globally as well. We're one global planet, one planet. Um, what, what would you like to see happen? What fundamentally needs to shift?
2: Joe. I think uh, consistent with the discussions in the last couple of days, it's very, very difficult to get there politically if there isn't a totally uncompromising commitment to deal with this in a systematic and comprehensive way. You know, a, a government of national unity, et cetera. You still want all of the innovation coming up from below, but there's, there's money, there's clarity, there's support and so on. We're being blocked all the time. There's a political environment that we have to get enormously better at stopping the negative effects of the vested uh, fossil fuel industry. That's a political question. And down in the practical level, one of the things that really hits us is regulations, you know, the EPA and all that sort of stuff. It just takes too long. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we get a free kick anywhere. But if it takes you three years to get a permit, it's not three years work. It's just mucking around and wasting time. So I'm not... It's not a you know, dog whistle uh, cry for, you know, lower environmental standards, it's that we've really got to start using our brains and and work out what we need to do quickly so that things that have got promise can be permitted and and moved uh, as fast as possible. I think permitting is actually quite a big block to this whole transition.
1: So how successful have you been at developing pilot uh, sites and projects? For your technology?
2: Well we've actually selected the first one to be one where the permitting environment is about as easy as you can get. Uh, this is with the macadamia shell uh, things. It's, macadamia shells are part of what they come on so they're not a waste etc. If we took some macadamia shells from across the road it'd be a waste of energy policy and we wouldn't see it for three years. You know it's just uh, so you you know we've I think it'll drive people out of our jurisdictions you know it'll drive people to, to more friendly environments where people are are smarter and quicker. Um, I think uh, I think there's a problem with our environmental regulators being. They've got compliance in their DNA. They're very bad people to manage innovation. You know, somehow we've got to get to a situation of, of uh, you know, we haven't had a lot of joy really in uh, in getting the EPA on on side is really the the answer to your question.
1: Oh, I'd love to drill in more, but we won't have time. But that's fascinating to me. Um, uh, Kate.
3: Yeah. Um, so it's it's a difficult question in the land use sector because it, it covers such a range of of different um, requirements. Well, and we're back
1: to a, an era of land clearing. Uh, and the windy back of land clearing legislation in some Australian states.
3: Yeah, so I was going to say, um, kind of in, in maybe a difference of opinion to Joe, that what I'd like to see governments do is ban more things, in particular land clearing and logging of native forests, so more regulation, more... Um, um, just banning things, basically. Um, now, the, the, that, the, except the things you don't want banned. Except the things I don't want banned. Um, but that depends. You know, there's a lot of nuance in that. But um, certainly, we don't need to be logging our native forests and the land. The rollback of land clearing. I mean, Queensland was a global hotspot for the last couple of years in terms of land clearing. We're clearing more land than in Indonesia and, the, um, and Brazil and other countries. So that really needs to stop. And there was. Um, I think, oh, the other thing I was going to say is incentives for farmers to put more trees in farms, to protect their soil, to farm in a different way, and not incentives um, such as farmers can do complicated methodologies and sell credits to the um, ERF or the CFI or whatever it's called these days, the Climate Solutions Fund auction. Um, actual sort of much more direct on the ground incentives for farmers to have more, to have land management practices that help them respond to a changing and much more risky climate. So that would be a huge benefit. I think the National Farmers Federation is calling for an ecosystem services fund, it might be called. So I'm not following it that
1: closely, but that sort of thing is, would actually be very helpful and very important. Thank you. Peter, from your perspective as a mangroves man,
4: I was swimming in the pool this morning and I found myself cuddling a man in the pool and I'll explain that in a second, but I was thinking about this same thing. Um, so when I arrived the other day in Melbourne, I was trying to stop people for some directions and it, it made me realise that people have very busy and complicated lives, people couldn't stop to give directions um, and that that's where we need things like carbon taxes, where we pay for the privilege to pollute um, and that those carbon taxes allow us to reinvest back in nature and also weans us off fossil fuels and switches us towards green technologies. And as uh, Peter Garrett said, you know the carbon tax by many was seen as a failure, but I believe emissions dropped by the largest amount in 26 years. We, we can fact check that. But anyway, it was, a, it was a remarkable success and I never noticed Mum's Sunday roast go up by $200 as was uh, prophesied by um, then uh, ministers at the time. Um, so I think we need a carbon tax. Um, a carbon no,
1: tax or a carbon price,
4: both. I, I just think that it is it is amazing that we're doing something that has a negative impact on others, and there's no, and, and for me, turning on the kettle in Australia is affecting somebody in Bangladesh. And Australia can weather the worst of climate change um, because we have a lot of money, but we are all sharing the same atmosphere, and we're not the people who are going to be hurt the most are not responsible for the worst of climate change. Um, I think for me too, um, as Bobby Kennedy once said about GDP, um, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worth living. And I think that what we call, what I call the the steak knives in my presentation, those are the ecosystem services. This is stuff nature gives us for free and we don't pay for it clean water, clean air, and it's often once it's gone that we realise the importance of those. And our economic decisions often don't consider the impacts on the environment, yet the health of our environment underpins our economy. And, and getting back to the swimming pool experience, well, when I arrived here this, yesterday, I was feeling a bit depressed. I, this climate change things causes eco-anxiety, and it really does affect people's ability to, to concentrate and think about what, what, what's the future gonna look like. I've got three young kids. Um, and, I, and I felt a really positive sense of energy the last couple of days. And and this morning, the man who hugged me in the pool was actually um, David Helfgott uh, uh, from the movie you might remember, Shine, he's a famous pianist. And um, I'd said to him, oh, do you want my lane? And, he, and, and I said, I'm here for a national climate change conference, and he says, change and he gave me a big cuddle, and we stood there embracing for about a minute, and I didn't realize who it was till I got out of the pool, and he says, and I play the piano. Um, and, and for me, I, I realized when I was getting in the lift, just, um, you know, that there, there are some people out there who, who, like many of us here in the room, are really passionate about making a difference, and, and we see that um, many of our politicians will vote based on what the public wants, you know, they're our elected followers in, in a way, and that uh, if we make enough noise, hopefully we'll start to see some change at the highest levels of government, because it's really hard, given our busy lives, to expect us to, for every Australian, to implement change
5: in their own lives.
1: Thank you, Peter, and just briefly, Tony, if you can, so we can get to some questions.
5: Okay, there, there are very briefly. Of, yeah, there are a lot of things I was going to say but just we have some world-leading land management systems. Uh, the government already supports to some degree the Maloon Institute, Peter Andrews, uh, natural sequence farming, permaculture, conservation ag. Unfortunately uh, it's not mainstream and it's the same issue we faced in Niger. Government needs to highlight the good work that's been done and help get it over that hurdle so that everybody's doing it.
1: Did you have some others there that you want to list, just quickly, in case people want to well, take some notes?
5: Ho- holistic grazing management, um, indigenous fire management practices, uh, agroforestry, so th- these types of things.
1: Fantastic. Let's come to a question. So yes, if you could pop your questions through the Slido system, we'd love to hear from you. First question. How do you ensure drawdown tech isn't only used to offset? Who'd like to take that one up?
2: The answer is not to stop doing the things we're talking about. We should be getting on with reforestation, regenerative agriculture, building up soil carbons. The problem is the laziness and the slowness and the treachery of the fossil fuel industry pushing us. Now, in Australia, you know, if you look at if you look at climate change, it's the total emissions in the world that affect all of us in terms of heating, by and large. The immorality of saying that we are the biggest trader of coal and the biggest trader of LPG in the world, and that's got nothing to do with climate change, we are a major economic exploiter of fossil fuels. And it is absolutely immoral in my mind that that should be rewarded with massive profits. They should be taxed or whatever to to buggery, um, you know, because it's affecting everybody. And here in Australia, we're making squillions of dollars out of doing it, and we pretend it's someone else's problem, you know, and that's what's given us the heat to, for our own fires. Anyway, so the, main, the important thing is not stop doing the good things. It's, it's get rid of the fossil fuels. The, the Stone Age didn't end because of lack of stones. The fossil fuel industry is not going to end because of the lack of fossils. It's got to stop because we've got something better to do.
1: Thank you. Uh, Another question, or did you... Yeah, another question. Uh, We actually haven't even talked about geoengineering, and I do wonder whether this idea that we should deploy technology at scale to uh, draw down or reflect sunlight back into space you know, the big big tech solutions. But we have a question here. Comment on the assumptions of drawdown or BECCS. BECCS stands for Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage, if I'm right, in international targets. Just explain that. Who would like to take that on? Yep, go for it.
3: Yeah, so um, this is coming from... The IPCC mo- um, modeling that's used in the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they released a really big report last, no, in 2018, two years ago, on 1.5 degrees, and that has put this 1.5 degree pathway and conversation on the table. But the the modeling that underpins those reports is essentially cost optimization economic modeling, and it was very challenging for those kinds of models to do to create deep mitigation pathways that reduced emissions fast enough um, to be compatible with 1.5 degrees so instead of reducing emissions fast enough they introduced this technology called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage which draws down large amounts of carbon and and then you get a 1.5 degree pathway over the century but a lot of these are essentially overshoot pathways we go above 1.5 degrees and we pull carbon out to get back down now the difference between that the scale of that in international
1: targets and but isn't this about burning biomass and then capturing the carbon, storing it in some way, in a semi... Capturing CO2. Capturing CO2.
3: Yeah, the idea is you capture the CO2 from burning the biomass and geologically store it. So instead of storing it in the terrestrial biosphere, it's geologically stored. so the questions about international targets, which is what I was going to comment on more than all of the reasons why BECS wouldn't work, but that's a whole other conversation that yeah. um, you can ask me about later. Um, so the issue in the international targets is the scale of assumed BECS, and BECS could, the scale of drawdown there could be achieved through other ways. There's other technologies like direct air capture, even mass tree planting, planting a trillion tree trees is, in some models, they do that instead of BECCS. But the, the consistency between them all is the scale of drawdown, and it's up to 1,200 gigatons of CO2 over the century. So essentially what these, what is in the targets is emitting three times our remaining carbon budget for one and a half degrees and removing two thirds of that. So that scale is quite untenable and enormously risky. The scale I was talking about with ecosystem restoration, essentially it falls at the very bottom of the range of drawdown that's required in the models. And so we're removing about 400 gigatons of CO2 instead of 1,200. So it's, in terms of international targets, it's really about, um, the, it's a balance between emissions and drawdown. And the more we reduce emissions, the less we emit, the less we have to draw down,
1: and then the lower the risk and the greater the chance of success. So we've got 10 more minutes allocated to us. Uh, any more questions? Yes, are there, un- are there inescapable trade-offs with drawdown and other SDGS? Just explain what that ac- acronym is, is again. Yell it out. Oh, that's right, God, of course. Sustainable Development Goals. Sorry, I don't talk in acronyms, I'm a broadcaster, I have eliminate them.
4: <laughs> so I think the SDGs are really being, we're seeing a lot of coalescence by big banks, um, fossil fuel industries, you know, you might see these little symbols up on their webpage about how we're addressing issues to do with life on water and climate change. So I think it really is a good way of us phrasing the conversation. And I think what we're coming back to is that there's some things we can't explain about nature, but nature really knows what it's doing. Um, and it is a really important part of the solution. And, and um, you know, getting back to what Tony was saying, taking a holistic view of what nature can do for us. I mean, we, when we do carbon drawdown through natural ecosystems, I can't comment too much on the geoengineering, but we do drawdown with natural ecosystems, we get all these other co-benefits, all these other great things that nature does for us. Um, I don't see any draw to d- any trade-offs. I, I, in my line of work, when you restore an ecosystem, a wetland, besides the fact that maybe I've stopped the development, and that's that's the, n- the only negative. In terms of SDGs, it's tick, 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 tick. It's it's you know it's it's a you're killing birds with many with one stone. Many birds with one stone. When you Except look you're to, you're not killing birds. No, sorry, that was a, yeah, a probably bad. a bad expression, but. You get the point. You get lots of other great stuff that nature does for us when you regenerate the planet and you are basically turning back the time in some places by having more plants, forests, trees. There's a lot of good stuff that comes with that.
1: Yes, it's a very interesting question though, isn't it? Because people will say, well, hang on a tick. It's my right to use that land to further my well-being, health, wealth, etc., uh, what risks are associated, another question, what risks are associated with drawdown practices and technologies? Fantastic question. Risks.
3: Maybe you have some, just, I'll just say something briefly, I don't know if other people have something to add, but I would say the biggest risk is um, land use, expecting to use a lot of land to lock up land um, in tree planning to draw down carbon. Um, that's, we we need like and it's the same to the previous question in terms of trade-offs with SDGs. It's a trade-off if we use a lot of land that's just there to lock up carbon and doesn't contribute to biodiversity and doesn't allow us to grow food and all those other things. So we really need to think about how we use land going into the future with increasing population and <clears throat> more extreme weather and climate impacts to deal with.
1: Tony.
5: Um, a few years ago, there's a real craze on jatropha planting, and they said the wonderful thing about this plant is it, it grows in dry areas. And so there's this great land grab in Africa, but other places as well. And I, somebody was talking to me about how wonderful this was, and I, I defied them. You find me one square foot of land in Africa that somebody doesn't claim. And for me, the biggest risk is, I think, Natalie, alluded to this, that there's no unused land, even if there's nobody there, as soon as you put a shovel in that land, somebody will be complaining. And all the conflicts in in the world, many, many of them are over land use. So for, for me, one of the reasons why our work succeeded was we empowered people on their own land to use their own resources and benefit from them. And the the danger with the Trillion Tree Program, apart from uh, the possibility of large monocultures and perhaps inappropriate planting on ecosystems that never had trees, is appropriation of other people's lands and and effectively Mm. impoverishing them forever.
1: Another question, and thank you for sending your questions through. Will tipping points make drawdown even more necessary? And I guess I'd add to that, will drawdown through natural systems be enough in the coming decade or two?
2: We've spent too much time being ineffective. And if we spend more time being ineffective, we run run out of wriggle room.
1: Just bring that mic a bit.
2: We're going to run out of wriggle room. You won't be able to fix things in reasonably acceptable ways. And people will pull on levers that are much more fraught, much more risky, like, you know, reflective things that you do in the stratosphere and so on. So there is a point that if we let things go too, if, too far, we will run out of wriggle room and there will be very little capacity to, uh, to use value adding and natural uh, drawdown techniques.
1: And a question from you, how does this discussion apply to other greenhouse gases, for example methane?
4: Um. We've actually been in this situation before. Does anybody remember the hole in the ozone layer? Yeah, so that was CFCs, just another form of greenhouse gas that we released, Um, and we dealt with that. The hole hasn't fully closed over, but we've come a long way by eliminating CFCs from our everyday lives. Um, Methane is a big one, and it affects some sectors. Um, It's 30 times more potent as a greenhouse gas. Um, We've seen in a lot of wetlands inland around Australia that we've drained, um, they've become huge sources of methane. And there's actually an opportunity within the carbon markets. um, And carbon markets, by the way, are said to become, by some analysts, one of the biggest commodity markets in the world, but there are now a lot of mechanisms where people can avoid emissions and can get carbon credits for doing that. So um, restoring the land. Nitrous oxide is another one that's 300 times more potent So, you know, the the top three, CO2, nitrous oxide, methane, um, they've got to be on the radar at at all times.
1: Do you think that part of what enabled the global community to act uh, effectively around the ozone layer was that the the financial and industrial interests in that product were lesser and less sophisticated in their penetration of government decision-making? Yep than Um, the fossil fuel industry?
4: It didn't hurt the hip pocket as much, that was for sure. Um, We could make tweaks and changes in the industry without having major economic impact. Um, I'm trying to be very pragmatic. I spend a lot of time working with um, oil and gas and others um, on this issue because, you know, there are, it is a huge part of our economy. Um, It is a huge, it it, it supports a lot of jobs in Australia. And uh, even though I'm very much concentrated in what we've already released in the atmosphere and putting it down, I think that we do need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels in a very clever way. Um, And it's very promising to see that there's so many people who know a lot about the green tech industry and say, you can do it and there's still plenty of jobs and it'll still be great for the economy.
1: I'm really keen to come to this final question with a comment from anyone who wants to weigh in, but this is vital to us all in the heart of Melbourne and beyond. What role do cities and urban areas play in drawdown? It's a fantastic question. Thank you for asking it. Joe.
2: Brendan down the front here is a leader. Uh, If you start using your properties, the, the balconies, the gardens, the roofs and so on to bring life back into the city have enormous effect.
1: And if you weren't at the session where Brendan spoke, he was, uh, he'd was he been involved in a, a massive housing development that was seven-star in terms of energy rating, etc. cetera.
5: But there was a figure the other day that uh, food waste actually is the third-largest contributor to emissions, so alter our eating habits. Third-largest. Yes, it was shocking, surprising. And then I, I put in a... a um, a word for urban forestry and, and gardening.
1: Any final comments? Look, this has been a really rich discussion and I hope it's given you lots of food for thought and left you with a, a kind of positive heart about what's possible if only we mobilise around uh, the science and tech that we do know exists right now. So, please put your hands together and thank Dr Joe Herbertson. Uh, Kate Dooley, Peter McCready, and Tony Renaudo. Thank you.
0: This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.